Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of the everyday? We know a hotel that's ready to unwind this weekend. Book hotels with spas in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we're joined by Ari Melbourne from MSNBC to talk to us about what's going on with the news and what should be top of mind. Donald Trump came up into this campaign with nothing to lose, with no relationships in politics, and with no sense of shame. So even the things that would constrain other presidents, even Richard Nixon, don't really apply here. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as always. Before we jump in... I'll just say that, you know, we talk so much about what it means to win and in the work of social justice. We forget that the work is in two phases. It is get the win and then it's protect the win. And there have been so many things that have happened over the last 200 years where people have made incredible strides and haven't always been as thoughtful about creating the space to protect that win so it's not stripped and taken away after those set of organizers die or go on and do other things. So remember... Get the win, protect the win. Let's go. Here's the news with me, Brittany Pecknett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing and a current education professional, Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the third on all social media. Hey, hey, hey. I haven't done that in a while. Like at least two episodes. I just said <laughs> I couldn't. Resist. I couldn't. <laughs> it just felt weird with not hearing it. Uh, and this is Dre D R A Y on Twitter. The wedding was really, um, I didn't have like royal wedding fever. I did not wake up in the morning to watch it, in part because I had two weddings myself to go to. Shout out to Keisha and Shatera. Your nuptials are beautiful. Um, but I like, I was like, I need to sleep because I'm going to be gone all day. And, but when I woke up, my feeds on all my social media were, was like the blackest royal wedding of all time. It was like, Negro spirituals and a black pastor who was like, I think who like when I watched Bishop Curry's sermon, I kept waiting for the like amens and the applause and then remembered that this is not a crowd that's used to that kind of preaching. And so I was like disappointed every time the wow (laughs) never came. But it was it was like a wonderful celebration of heritage in a way that I think people were not expecting and people had doubted of Meghan Markle. So there, there was a lot of beauty in it. You know, I, I enjoyed it. It was incredible. It was also uh, fascinating to see the reactions from, you know, not only the Royals, but all of the other <laughs> esteemed, you know, British, I don't know what to call them, the, the, the gentry class. Like, I don't know what you even call them, but <laughs> what is this blackness? <laughs> right, right, right. They had, and then, um, Bishop Curry, he, he talked about slavery. You remember that? 
Brought up MLK too. Yes, Sam said, you, MLK Sam says everything. you remember that like it was like three thousand years ago. He's like, it you, was it's like, like Sam. It just happened back in the day. Remember that? <laughs> My favorite line was when he said when he started talking about love, and he said, "Imagine governments like being led by mm. love." And I was like, "Whoop! Well, there you go." And they were everybody mad. They were mad a comment about, about British imperialism. <laughs> there it is, right and, there. No, he was great. Oh, and they and, were mad. And, they were like, "What?" And the musician, the cellist. He was incredible. He was incredible. Yes. The uh, the choir director, she was on point. The choir was on point. Whether, whatever you feel about royals, like it is perfectly okay to enjoy two people falling in love. Like that is a thing that should be celebrated. Um, and you know, for the extra dashes of culture that we all experience, like, amen. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I watched the clips afterwards. I didn't get a chance to to wake up and 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 see it but there was you know for me uh, a little bit of dissonance because i was just thinking about the history of of the british empire and like the way that it colonized like so much of the diaspora um but then i was also thinking about yeah. the fact that like we live in a country in which like that is also predicated on like imperial genocide right like and 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 every day yeah. you know i think that black folks in this country have to sort of wrestle with that cognitive dissonance and, and find joy even amid uh, a sort of, you know, incessant set of historical oppressions um, that because because what else are we going to do? Right. Like, I think, you know, pe- some people were critiquing and I think it's fair to critique. They were saying like, oh, how can we celebrate the royal wedding, you know, while like British black British people are suffering or uh, the British, you know, Great Britain is responsible for centuries of imperialism. And I think all of that is fine to talk about. Um, and I think that that That's is legit. a real thing that deserves to be interrogated. I And, you know. I was celebrating Megan. I wasn't celebrating Word. the rest and, of them. And, and I think Megan and Megan's mom. <laughs> right. Like we were we were here for Megan and Megan's mama and her right. locks and her nose ring and Mother Oprah's hat. Let's yes, be very clear. Yes. That Easter hat, she was like, forget it, fascinated. Gina Y'all Torres, getting a wide Oprah. brim, big flowers. And the yes. whole dress the dress was made overnight, Brittany. Like, did you hear that? Stella McCartney made that dress overnight? Yes. Oprah was like, Oprah was like, Oh, this other dress is like a little too close to white and I'm not gonna be that woman. So let me do something else. And Stella was like I've got you, darling. I love it. It's fine. But I think Clint's point is important, right? That like was Clint finished making his point? Clint, were you finished making your point? I mean, everybody Clint got real hyped. You know, it's all good. Oh, my it's bad. All, you know, Sam was like, Meghan Merkel. My bad. <laughs> yeah, that was my bad. <laughs> we started talking about the last. No, I mean, I think the point is just that, like, you know, whether it's, it's the same, it's almost the same sort of thing I was thinking about with the state dinners that they had with the um, Obamas, right? And that, like, Michelle mm. and Barack were out here stunning on them. Like, Michelle looked beautiful. Barack looked so stately. And, like, the state dinner yes. is this kind of weird formal tradition that calls a lot of money that could arguably be used in different ways but you know you you try to hold these sort of complicated things side by side and you say we can interrogate the ways in which like money is allocated in our society and also still find things to celebrate within that which we attempt to interrogate i don't know i think i just believe in the sort of you know people talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time and uh and I don't think that, you know, celebrating Meghan Merkel or being like, look at this, her mom, this black woman with dreads and a nose ring literally sitting, you know, in in the the most famous royal hall in the world um, is is an image that 
that means something to a lot of people. And I don't think that 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 should be uh, taken away from folks. Amen. As I always say, joy is resistance too, especially when you have experienced depression. Everybody wants us to walk down, walk around downtrodden and depressed um, and uh, unable to function because that would mean that oppression won. Uh, and so resisting that is also about expressing love, giving love away and finding joy wherever you can. Joy is resistance too. I'm all about it. Um, I also, like I said, celebrated love all weekend and left St. Louis where the weddings were, um, to come back to Sarah land, Alabama. Uh, and just wanted to shout out the, the organizers, the protesters, um, who came from all around the country. We had folks from Ferguson, from New York city, um, but especially the people, um, from right here in Alabama who decided to look fear straight in the face in their own hometown, uh, and move forward on behalf of, and with Shakisha Clemens. Shakisha inspired so many young women in particular to come out in March today and homegirl, my little sis was just so, so, so brave. Um, and we, um, did an action today at the Waffle House, marched about two miles, um, with, with many people, uh, who were just like tired of the way black women are being treated. And so was really thankful for today. It was certainly a day of protest and a day of action, which those days can be challenging and difficult. Um, but there was a lot of laughter and a lot of love and a lot of joy in that space too. And so I just wanted to shout out every single person who decided on this Sunday to pray with their feet. Another thing that happened this week, um, was that our, our president, uh, or some people's president, not my president, but uh, the the president of this country, he hashtag not my president. He made a remark uh, <laughs> in a in a meeting that was discussing the, the undocumented immigrants coming into the country and border security, and um, and in it he was asked a question by a woman um, about. Uh, MS-13 and like, uh, you know, and how she, um, you know, how can I protect my community or how can I, I, I don't have the exact transcript in front of me. Um, and then he did this thing that he often does where he sort of pivoted away from talking about gang members or MS-13 specifically, um, and then sort of made a sort of more broad, sweeping, opaque claim about people um, who were like coming into this country and uh, and that they were doing more to protect, you know, keep these folks out of the country and get rid of them than anyone before. And in the process of doing so, he called them animals. He said, these are not people. These are animals. Uh, and this is part of a uh, that was particularly unsettling uh, because it's part of a long tradition and long history in which um Groups of people have been referred to as animals, and and the unsettling part is that that has often been used to, um, that is that often precedes sort of uh, genocidal actions or or enslavement or uh, sort of mass deportation. Jewish people prior to the Holocaust were called rats. Uh, the Tutsis were called cockroaches prior to the Rwandan genocide. Um, Africans were, were called apes, uh, as, as well known before, before and during um, the antebellum enslavement. And so this is like part of a long history. And, and there were some folks who tried to make it sound as if, you know, he wasn't talking about all immigrants or undocumented immigrants. He was talking about MS-13. And the thing about Trump is that he has always attempted to conflate um, like criminal 
actors and entire communities in an effort to criminalize and create a caricature of those communities. And so he what he he does this rhetorical move that purposefully makes it unclear and and creates this sort of partisan debate. Um, but it is not inconsistent with what he was has done before. And uh, and even if, and the, and even if he was only talking about gang members, which he wasn't, you can go look at the transcript. Even if he was only talking about MS thirteen, you there is no reason to still render someone an animal when they are a human being. And that has like very real consequences and implications. He also doesn't just conflate um, people with immigrants with criminal histories and immigrants who don't have criminal histories rhetorically. He literally doesn't in policy. Um, I was reading yesterday that uh, the number of people who have been detained and deported um, that do not have any criminal history has doubled since the Obama administration. Like, this is not just talk. This is the action of this administration, right? And so we can tell what someone believes by the words they choose. And the words they choose are indicative of the actions they will take. In this case, and in so many cases before with Trump, he has said absolutely derogatory things about immigrants and then done harm to those same people. One always follows the other with him. It's not just about words, which are bad enough, which are degrading enough, which are insulting enough. It is also about the actions that he is continuing to take. I mean, him saying that he's going to be separating children from um, there, if, if if people cross the border, the borders that he's going to separate those children from their parents, deport the parents, and then put the children in what they're calling foster care, but is probably going to be something even worse, even though foster care is obviously a deeply challenged and flawed system in and of itself. I mean, these are real live threats that he's making to people who are simply trying to make a better way for themselves and their families. It is disgusting, not to mention the fact that a man who is a serial sexual harasser, like cheater, liar, manipulator, with a dusty hairstyle, does not have any business calling anybody an animal. Besides love, any of that. I love the what dusty in the world hairstyle. are you doing dusty calling somebody an animal? Is like... I can't. Yeah, I'll just say um, that the media really failed on this one by sort of pulling back and equivocating, and and that's just real. This was one of those things where, like, he does so many wild things that the bar in the media is just, like, gone. Like, people just don't, like, there's, like, this weird thing where it's like, well, that's just, like, another bad thing he said. And then people are like, oh, he really wasn't talking about gang members. And, like, the, and not only did, like, sort of people just say that in communities, like, the news sort of retracted the outrage over the statement. And you're like, come on, media, y'all got to do better than this because he's not talking about y'all. Like, he lambasts y'all all the time and you're, like, outraged, but he calls a set of people animals and it's suddenly like, oh, well, it might be okay if he's just talking about these people. And you're like, first of all, he's making up... <laughs> Everyone calls Yeah, He's making up who who's a member of MS-13. Like, he's, <laughs> he's just, like, randomly... Like we know, we know that they're just making that up. So like, it's this isn't even just talking about gang members. He's like making it up. So yeah, you know, we don't talk about Trump much here because it's like the same rhyme every week. But the animals thing was and because he's dusty. (laughs) Dusty. Next. (laughs) So my piece of news. This really didn't get covered a lot at all, but happened last week, and that is that the House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly 382 to 35 uh, for a, quote, Blue Lives Matter bill. Uh, So the the bill is called the Protect and Serve Act of 2018. 
And what it would do, uh, it creates a new crime in the criminal code uh, that would include up to ten, uh, up to a ten-year sentence for assaulting or attempting to assault a law enforcement officer. Um, and you know, this is something that. Number one, when Trump first got into office, he signed that executive order uh, directing the attorney general's office and the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute these types of, you know, cases, anything that they thought was, you know, threats against law enforcement. We've seen rhetoric not only from this administration, but in many states uh, and supported by police unions all across the country in order to pass policies that they call Blue Lives Matter bills uh, that increase, you know, protections for law enforcement uh, and that often include stiffer penalties on a whole range of things, uh, depending on the state, from uh, penalties against protesters uh, to penalties against anyone who resists arrests to penalties against anyone who uh, is perceived to have assaulted a law enforcement officer. Uh, now, what's fascinating about this is that we've seen this pass already in 12 states at, at the state level in Republican-controlled states. What's interesting about this is the House of Representatives, uh, almost every Democrat, all but 24 Democrats voted for this bill, including uh, leading progressive Democrats like Keith Ellison and others, uh, many members of the Congressional Black Caucus. So a lot of folks who you know, when we talk about uh, holding police accountable and making sure that, you know, Congress is doing its part to do that, uh, this is very much uh, not in that spirit. This is actually calling out a problem that doesn't exist, which is, uh, you know, threats against law enforcement. We know that, you know, this year was, again, another one of the safest years for law enforcement officers in the country. We know that people who do assault law enforcement officers are, there is no dearth of prosecution against them or uh, jail time. Um, and yet they are trying to increase prison sentences even further. Um, and so I, it's just sad. That's, that's, that's my take. Yeah. You know, Sam, this bill is hugely disappointing. Um, and I think that this is, this is where a lot of people get caught up because the optics of this bill don't look bad if you do not know what you're looking for. So you're saying, of course, people shouldn't assault police officers. Of course, there should be punishment for that. But A, like you, Sam said, there is no lack of punishments for people who assault police officers, period. But this is how people get painted into political corners, right? I say that three times fast. This is how people get painted into political corners because folks in police lobbies and other spaces know that if they word a bill like this one, that to come out against it would make you look bad to your constituents. It would make you look like you don't care about police, that you're quote unquote soft on crime, which as we know from the nineties is like a, a cardinal sin of politics. Um, and that you want people to wantonly be injuring police officers. Uh, and so to have a conversation about the nuances of this bill, about the truth of of the about the truth of the fact that there is not a war on police in this country um and um to actually take this a bill like this from theory to practice to have that conversation would be politically very difficult for people and because we put political expedience above people this is the result that we get what i'll add about this is that so passing the house that is a huge it's just, just like a failure. I don't know what else to say about it. I, I was on the DNC transition team. I'm going to call those people. Um, I'm going to call them, you know, this week and ask, like, what happened? Like, it just doesn't, I don't understand. The party wonders why people are losing faith in it and they do this. That aside is that the Senate version of the bill is even worse. Like, who thought it could be worse? 
the way it works is that uh, if this bill passes, it'll be a federal crime to assault police officers. Like a, that'll be like a unique sort of crime, a subset of it won't just be like regular assault to a person. This would be a, a, its own crime, punishable up to 10 years in prison. That's the House version. The Senate version would make this a hate crime, which would uh, potentially increase the penalties up to like five years, a fine, things like that. And we know because Louisiana actually passed a law that made assaulting a police officer a hate crime. And in Louisiana, if the defendant is convicted of a hate crime, additional penalties are tacked on. Uh, so that can mean up to more, five more years in prison with hard labor and a $5,000 fine. So it is just a nightmare. And the police are playing a structural game around like passing laws and policies that benefit them. And, you know, we've talked about the Ferguson effect on here before, but that is not a real thing. And, and this notion that police are like under fire, it's like the protesters have at the most basic level been asking for a modicum of justice and accountability, or that is not a threat to the lives of officers. I came across an article about the increase among children and teenagers in suicidal thoughts and attempted suicide. Uh, the article is in Time magazine, um, and a recent study showed that there has been a significant amount of growth in what is called suicide ideation. So thinking about killing yourself, um, attempting suicide in, in any way. In 2000, from 2008 to 2015, um, it has more than doubled. Um, and what's really disturbing is that the largest increases were actually seen uh, in adolescents between two age groups, 15 and 17, and 12 and 14. Also, the increases were higher among girls than boys. And the researchers also saw that there were more suicide attempts or ideations during the school year versus the entire calendar year. So that's actually the opposite of what is true about adults. Adults actually have higher suicide rates in the spring and summer, whereas young people tend to have higher suicide rates and suicide ideation during the school year. Um, and, you know, Sadly, it's kind of anybody's guess as to what could be causing this. Um, we know that rates of depression and loneliness are climbing, climbing among young people. Um, and a lot of people are attributing, a lot of people, meaning mental health practitioners, are attributing this to um, per the prevalence of social media, to feeling increasingly disconnected, to feeling increasingly left out. We use the the term FOMO, the fear of missing out, kind of casually. And, you know, when we're sick in the bed and our friends are having fun on a Saturday night, but actually it affects young people very differently. And given the ways in which they are still developing socially and emotionally, um, it can actually mean a, a, a far greater deal um, to feel like you are intentionally being left out of other people's plans. Here's what I also learned, though, doing some further research beyond that article, uh, because like anything, I was forced to think about how this could possibly be affecting increasingly marginalized young people. So disabled young people, young people of color, LGBTQ youth, etc. Um, black teen rates have actually doubled and native youth rates of suicide um, continue to remain at crisis levels. Uh, but even though we know, now know that this is true because people have done more reporting, people of color are historically misclassified and undercounted in suicide data. So no one really knows which specific deaths have been mischaracterized 
as not being suicide, but essentially the coroners who are responsible for classifying the type of death will more often rule the deaths of people of color as a homicide or as undetermined because sometimes the family actually does not want to identify that suicide is what uh, killed their loved one. Um, and so because of the coroner having misclassification, that leads local, state, and federal data to be incomplete and incorrect. So we actually don't know um, exactly how, at least from the research I've done, and if any listeners out there know better, please do let us know. Um, but we don't know as much as we should know about how this is affecting more marginalized communities. And, you know, I'll just end by saying, growing up in a black community, I still remember hearing this idea, and maybe I only heard this, maybe this is something that other people heard, and it's perhaps a bit of, the air, of an airing of dirty laundry, but this idea that, like, suicide was something white people did, that if you are black, that you just need to pray a little bit harder, go to church a little bit more, get a little stronger, and get through it. This is deeply related to the fact that mental health is taboo in many communities of color, including black communities. Um, but, you know, we clearly need more research on this uh, and how it is affecting people of color. And I am deeply disturbed at the amount uh, of, of increased suicide ideation that we're seeing among young people. I want to kind of really double down on a point that you made, Brittany, um, and this idea of, about of FOMO, right, and the way that we how we think about you know, when we're scrolling on Instagram or Facebook or what have you, when we see that uh, a bunch of people we're friends with or that we know are all in this place and we're not there, the most, uh, you know, emotionally mature adult can have like a a, a response to that. That's kind of like, oh, oh, like I, I feel some sort of way that I was not invited or told or or even if you were that you simply are not there. In our conversation about healthy living, we don't often talk about what it means to have like meaningful relationships with people and like and engage with people in a face to face way. But I think that we have to begin to think about um, our social lives as as a part of our wellness, you know, um, and, and Britain was talking before about joy as a form of resistance and, and you know, people talking about self-care. Like those aren't just buzzwords like this is real. Like and, and if you are not. Um, taking care of yourself and if you are not cultivating community and if you are not, um, you know, logging off and putting your phone down and having an actual conversation with somebody over over lunch or, or, or having somebody over to your house, then those have real implications on your health long term. You know, I used to run an after school program in Baltimore and one of my seventh graders took his life. And Brittany, when you talk about um, this idea of like, like mental health is for white people and counseling and things like that. I'm mindful that that is often the case or like this idea that you pray it away and da 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 because people haven't had access, right? That like we actually, I, as a kid, I can't think of like a set of times where like going to a counselor was like even a real option. Like the guidance counselor at school did like, I don't know, the schedule and lunch duty, right? Like, that's what counseling was to me. It wasn't until I was an adult that I was like, oh, like a counselor could be something else and like a mental health. So when we talk about like adequately funding a social network for people, like a social safety net, like mental health is a part of that. And like, what would it look like if we had social workers in, in schools and we had guidance counselors who actually offered guidance and not just doing the scheduling and like college access, right? Like that that is an access issue. And we should be thinking about access much earlier than we are. And again, I didn't understand the severity of it until 
a, a seventh grader that I loved and cared about took his life. And I was like, wow, this is actually much younger like than I than I thought. The other thing is that while there's an increase in suicides, there's also a significant increase in emergency room visits for self-inflicted non-fatal injuries among children and young adults. So it's sort of interesting is like suicide obviously is when it results in, in death. There's also like a self-harming component happening that's not resulting in death that we also need to talk about and that we need to make sure that we uh, get the people impacted to treatment. You know, you all, in a moment of truth, I will share that I am someone who, for a time in my life, had suicidal thoughts quite often, um, and I'm deeply thankful that I made it through those dark nights to see a much, much brighter day. And so I want you to know that there is hope on the other side, and that if you or anyone you know is thinking about those same things or contemplating suicide or harming themselves, no matter what age they are, no matter that background, you should call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. So for my news, I wanted to briefly bring up a new study by Douglas Sperry, Linda Sperry, and Peggy Miller. And it is in the new issue of Child Development. Um, and it's called Reexamining the Verbal Environments of Children from Different Socioeconomic Backgrounds. And, and what the study is doing is that there's a, there was a really popular study done uh, years ago that came up with the idea of the, the 30 million word gap. And in essence, that was it was suggesting that uh, there is a 30 million word gap in terms of the amount of words that children from low income background here as compared to their higher income uh, counterparts. And and this has had huge implications on in the landscape of, of education policy. And there have been entire foundations and initiatives and and nonprofits um, and and pedagogies and trainings and professional development that have been set up uh, around this very idea and around what does it mean to to intervene in an effort to um, to to mitigate the impact of this uh, you know espoused 30 million word gap and and so the original study involved 42 families in the 1980s and they were all from Kansas uh, and researchers measured vocabulary use in one hour increments every month and then extrapolated from that. Um, the thing is that the methodology was was limited, I'll say, uh, in that it estimated that children in the most impoverished group and, and in that most impoverished group, that was six African-American children, um, heard 30 million fewer words than did children of the most privileged group, which was 13 uh, offspring of professional families and one of whom was African-American. So part of the problem is that the researchers were only counting person to person interactions between a mother and a child as as the means by which to determine what the gap was and and that is like a very sort of like american centric middle class notion of what it what people believe communication with uh, a child should be but and there's an entire sort of uh, much larger cultural framework that doesn't necessarily include um, a sort of didactic engagement like that, that, that was not taken into account. And so, you know, develop, language development happens in a lot of ways that isn't necessarily someone just speaking, uh, a mother speaking to a child. Um, you know, part of it is like children listening to adult conversations. Part of it is them sitting and observing their siblings or even like listening to the radio or listening to television. And, 
and so the sample size and the methodology of this original study uh, was was very limited, but the study was never replicated. Um, and this new study sort of challenges a lot of these notions, and they have a much more diverse sample size, and are and are kind of saying, you know, there's a lot of pathology that's laden um, and embedded within the the assumptions that this study is making. And what does it mean to like extrapolate for an entire community based off of the experiences of six African-American families um, in Kansas in the 1980s? And so I think the value of this study is that it sort of complicates our, our conceptions about the 30 million word gap and what it is and what it means. And that's not to be clear. That's not to say that you should not speak to your child or narrate to your child and have conversations with your child. You most certainly should. But it is to say that we should be wary of how much we're putting into the the sort of aforementioned 30 million word study and um, thinking about what it means to replicate something, uh, replicate a study that has clearly had such a, a huge import on the way that um, education policy has been created over the last you know couple decades. Uh, it's so fascinating because this is a real learning point, I think, for me and so many people in the education community. Um, I am constantly, after having worked in this particular field for over 10 years, constantly unlearning so many of the things I was taught. So many of the phrases that I repeated, so many of the stats that I was told to use um, simply because whether good intentions, ill intentions, or something in between, what we experienced for a very long time in education, not unlike other fields, was a deeply Euronormative, middle-class dominant framing for everything, right? So on a previous episode, we talked about the phrase, the achievement gap. And while it was important to name the gaps that children of color were experiencing, the achievement gap was unnecessarily Euronormative and it placed the blame on the young people themselves, right? That they are, it, it is their fault that they are not simply achieving more instead of recognizing the systemic and structural issues at play, which is why many more people now use the phrase opportunity gap. But it took us unlearning why, uh, unlearning achievement gap and learning why it was so problematic to move to opportunity gap. Um, and I also often use the phrase um, absolute, you know, educational um, uh, excellence uh, and equity because we're not just talking about closing gaps. We're talking about getting to an absolute bar, right? So both things are true. Um, and this, the same is, is true here. To your point, Clint, this measured things by assuming that everyone is only raised by their biological parent um, and that they are not experiencing many caregivers throughout a day. When I was a teacher, I had students that would be picked up sometimes by a cousin, an aunt or an uncle, go to uh, an after school program at a church or a mosque or that was sports related and be, be loved on and supported by a coach or a pastor or any mom and then move on to their actual home where they could have been being raised by their biological parents or non-biological parents, by a grandparent, by a family friend. So there are lots of influencers in a child's life who are communicating with them all the time. And if you don't measure those people, well, of course you're going to see an undercount because there may be uh, for a lot of systemic reasons, a real reason why your mother or your father needs to have other people help support you in, in, in giving you care. I will say uh, in no small way did this study almost single-handedly change the way we thought about literacy, especially in low-income communities, that the Clintons, when they were in the White House, they took this up and 
convened uh, early childhood sort of development, convening about it. The Clinton Foundation started this thing called Too Small to Fail that was then picked up by other administrations. The Obama administration had a whole page sort of around the world gap where they talk about the Too Small to Fail talking is teaching campaign in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They talk about Georgia's Talk With Me Baby campaign, the City of Providence's Providence Talks campaign, and the University of Chicago School of Medicine's 30 Million Words initiative. And those are just like a small sampling of the way that we restructured literacy departments in in school districts, that we changed curriculum. And and again, it was based on like flawed science. And it's sort of wild because there's still a lot of educators who have no clue that this study was like questionable at best. And what does it even mean where people don't even think to question it? Because it's like, of course, poor people and people of color, of course, they not around words like it just makes sense. And you're like, well, what if it doesn't make sense? Right. And like it is a reminder that we have to be much more thoughtful about the way we turn these studies into programs and services or embed them into structures. Uh, my news is about Medicaid. So Trump and the administration is uh, moving quickly to allow states to impose mandatory work requirements on their Medicaid programs. And it looks like in states like Kentucky, Michigan and Ohio, the proposals are going to go through and they would subject hundreds of thousands of people uh, to these work requirements that will cut off their health insurance if they can't meet the hours per week threshold. Now, in Kentucky, it's already approved. There's a waiver approved. There's one pending in Ohio and there's another one sort of advancing in, in Michigan. Again, like those three look like it's going to work. And Kentucky was the first state. The reason I bring it up here is that the way it's going to be implemented will benefit white people and disadvantaged people of color. Ding, ding, ding. Seems like a theme in this administration. Right. So the way they're going to do the waivers is that the waivers include exemptions for counties with the highest unemployment. And what's interesting about that is that those places tend to be majority white, GOP, and rural. And you might be like, well, how does that work? Because wouldn't places where black people live have a lot of unemployment because there's a lot of black unemployment? Well, the thing is, is that many low-income people of color who live in high unemployment urban centers wouldn't qualify because the wealthier suburbs that surround those cities pull down the overall county unemployment rate below the threshold. So the people that would benefit a lot are people who live in these like homogenous white communities that are poor, like outside of and not near cities. So to give you just an example of what this looks like, the waiver in Kentucky will have the effect of exempting eight southeastern counties where the percentage of white residents is over 90 percent. And the work requirements will be first imposed in northern Kentucky, which includes counties with a higher concentration of black residents. In Michigan, people who live in counties with unemployment rates above 8.5 percent would be exempt. And those counties are overwhelmingly white, rural and vote Republican. But low-income residents of color in Detroit and Flint, for instance, where joblessness and poverty are really high, they would not receive an exemption, again, because of the way counties are situated. So this is sort of a, another way to think about what this article calls racial redlining, that like it's not sort of explicitly dealing with race, but it's just found another way to make the implementation race-based. In the Washington Post analysis, found that while African-Americans make up 23% of Medicaid enrollees in Michigan, they would make up just 1.2% of people eligible for an exemption. 
whereas 57% of Michigan Medicaid enrollees are white, but white residents would make up 85% of the population eligible for exemption. So just want to bring this here because I hadn't known this. And then I was like, wow. Yep. Uh, and that is what we call institutional racism. And it is something where, you know, a lot of people in talking about Trump, uh, they would say, you know, he's cutting all of these benefits, but it's actually going to be a lot of poor white people who are going to be impacted by these cuts. And they're really voting against their own interests by supporting Trump. And what we see here is that you know, Trump is very conscious of who, you know, he is actually who supports him and who he supports. And I think Republicans in general are wise to this. And, you know, they are indeed cutting programs that imp- that disproportionately impact low-income people. But they're doing it in strategic ways that exempt uh, white rural communities, their base, from the most severe impacts of those policies. Uh, and, you know, I think this is just the latest example. You see this in the way that they are uh, engaging in voter suppression where, yeah, they're making it hard to vote, but they're especially making it hard to vote in black areas. So you see that in in voting when where the, yeah, they're making it harder to vote in general, where now everybody has to show an ID, but they know full well that, you know, black folks are the group most likely to be impacted by that. And they're doing this here with the provision of Medicaid. Uh, where work requirements now, you know, the folks who are going to have to work are folks that are in, you know, these counties uh, that are disproportionately uh, black folks uh, in these areas. And so, you know, have to think strategically about, number one, how are they doing this through state control, states sort of implementing uh, these requirements in these ways. Uh, And that's also why it's important that we take back state legislatures and uh, the governorships in these states so that they can't number one, request these waivers, but number two, they won't be implementing them in in such biased ways. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. We also spoke with Stacey Dean, Vice President of Food Assistance Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in D.C. to get a bit of background on what was happening with the Farm Bill, how that would have impacted food stamps, also known as SNAP, and even though it is currently not moving forward, just to understand what was happening. You know, the House was right to vote down a bill on Friday that would take food assistance away from millions of people who need it. That bill would make SNAP, which we used to call food stamps, less effective in ensuring that people have enough food to eat and less effective in supporting low-wage working families. But this fight isn't over. House leaders can bring this bill up again for a vote, and they almost certainly will try to gather the votes to push this harmful bill through the House and on to the Senate. SNAP is the country's most effective anti-hunger program. It helps one in eight Americans afford a basic diet every day. And most SNAP participants are children, seniors, or people with disabilities. I think the thing that most people don't know about the program is how modest its benefits are, just $1.40 per person per meal. Yet with that, SNAP really packs a punch. It fights food insecurity, it reduces poverty, and over the long term, it improves the health of children and makes it likelier that they'll graduate high school. 
The House bill would directly end or cut food assistance for more than 2 million people. It also proposes harsh penalties for people who don't prove each and every month that they've worked enough to meet a rigid new work requirement or qualify for an exemption. It would take someone's food assistance away for a full year the first time this happens and three years the second time it happens. Those who would most likely lose food assistance are workers, including parents raising kids and older workers, uh, both who have low-wage jobs like home health aides or cashiers. People in these kinds of jobs often have hours that fluctuate for reasons beyond their control, and they're sometimes temporarily laid off, making it hard for them to meet a requirement like this. Many people with serious physical or mental conditions would also struggle to meet the requirement or to provide enough paperwork to prove they qualify for an exemption. The same goes for people who are caring for a sick child or a sick parent. And children would be hurt because when parents lose SNAP, there are fewer resources to provide food for the whole family. Rather than push through this deeply flawed and partisan bill, the House should go back to the drawing board and develop a bipartisan bill that strengthens SNAP, which is America's most effective anti-hunger program. It was great to be here, DeRay. Now, there are a lot of things that you can do to stay on top of everything. You can go to cbpp.org, which has resources and information, and you can take action through CAPS Hub at handsoffsnap.org. And here we are with Ari Melber, host of MSNBC's The Beat. Ari. Very happy to be here. It's so good to, it's so good to have you. Are you the only child? Uh, one older brother, five years older. You're the youngest. I'm the youngest. Do you act like a youngest? I think I've always acted like the youngest child. And how did you, where'd your love of the law come from? I, I will say this. Although I didn't grow up in a super observant Jewish household, per se... I think that Jewish culture does overlap a lot with the law. I mean, if you think about what is a bar mitzvah, which is a big thing, most people have been to at least one, uh, black bar mitzvah, mazel tov, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm following him. I'm ready for the next. You're, reading, you're reading a chapter of this book, and you're rereading that every year. The Torah is different chapters of what other people call the Old Testament. And then you're looking at what do the words mean, because let there be light. Congress will, shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. I mean, these are short sentences. And then all of the interpretation is where the action is. And so I think there is some kind of overlap there, depending on the type of household you grew up in. How did you become a legal analyst person? Like, what I, was I think that? the technical term you're looking for is legal eagle. <laughs> legal eagle. How did I become a, a legal eagle? Um, first, chilling in the nest as a little baby eagle. Where? <laughs> Who is this guy? This is not how he is on MSNBC, everybody. I'm this is sorry. a layback Ari. Oh, I like I'm it. sorry. We I like spo- it. Is it supposed to be this? Do you No, I'm, do you I'm want trying to learn. Do you I'm want me to, to use my tracking voice? Right, I mean, we could go full oh, TV if that's what you no, want. No, I just want to know why. how you got into... When the FBI knocked on Michael Cohen's door. I couldn't Google how you got into He was into as the... surprised as anyone. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, is... this is a podcast. I thought we were supposed to have fun here. I know, but I want to know. So, the, the yeah, the answer is... In, in terms of what I did, I got a degree in political science. I went to work uh, in the U.S. Senate for Senator Maria Cantwell. Then I went and worked for John Kerry. But for law, I came out of that and, and thought, man, I want to work on policy. I want to work on substance. I was a kid, basically, when I went to the Hill, and I naively was surprised to find that it was not a place that cared a lot or was seemed very focused on law and policy to me. Um, so that's when I went off to Cornell Law School, studied the law, and went and did free speech, First Amendment law, as well as as litigation contracts, mm-hmm. government investigations. 
Can you give us a brief overview of who is Michael Cohen and why it matters? Michael Cohen is a lawyer who doesn't practice a lot of law, a self-described fixer for Donald Trump, and a senior executive of the Trump organization. He has emerged as a central figure in multiple scandals that have at least the potential to engulf the Trump presidency because he was the bag man secretly wiring payments to women accusing Donald Trump of everything relating from consensual contact to dealing with women who who accused him of misconduct, as well as a Trump organization fixer who would deal with any problem that Donald Trump needed solved immediately or needed done off the books. And that ranged from everything from showing up at condo board meetings to uh, tell people how it had to go down. And he would do that sometimes armed with a gun and ankle holster. And I can tell you that's somewhat uncommon for Manhattan attorneys. Maybe in Texas, more more lawyers are strapped. Did he come take the medical records too, or is that somebody else? Uh, That was Keith Schiller, the bodyguard. But I would say Keith Schiller... uh, works basically as the, the muscle for the fixer. So, so Michael Cohen does all that stuff, and he's involved in pitching real estate and other business dealings in Moscow. And then we learn very recently he's operating a slush fund where corporations say they made a huge mistake paying him and he did nothing for them. And a Russian oligarch-sanctioned billionaire's fund was putting money directly into that slush fund as well. This is AT&T. It was AT&T. It was Novartis. And then you have this this Russian fund putting the money into the same shell company that was paying out Stormy Daniels. So Michael Cohen's doing all these things at once. And the big question it raises, something we explore on, on air, is do you, do you think this is a floor or a ceiling? In other words, if this is the worst stuff and it's all out now and this is it, and none of it, by the way, has Donald Trump's signature on it, then whether you—you you said we're not talking about it too much, but whether you, whether you like or dislike the president, if you're a fair-minded person, you have to say there's no evidence on him, and that's where it stops, if it's a ceiling— or is it a floor? Because this stuff is still just coming out. And you say, was October the first and only time Michael Cohen ever set up a shell account in his 10-plus years working as the bagman for Donald Trump? Or is that just the one we know about? And is it much worse what we don't know? And those, I think, are open questions. What did he do before he was Trump's lawyer? He operated a series of uh, taxicab companies, taxi medallions in New York, which, if you're not familiar with how weird New York is and you know, know about that dark, dark time before Uber— You know, if you thought Uber Pool was bad, try getting a taxi in Brooklyn at 2 in the morning. Um, So the taxi medallion company business used to be very profitable here. In fact, and this is one of those weird things you couldn't predict, it was so profitable because there was essentially kind of a a cap on how many companies could operate under Yellow Cab in New York. If you had a medallion, it was worth a lot of money. They tended to go up over time. And so he had uh, millions from that, basically, in that company. It's only recently that Uber squashed... The value, those medallions fell, and that's part of why his uh, $9 million home, Michael Cohen's home, is very much leveraged because some of the collateral they put up were the medallions that are worth less now. So he, like Uh Mike Flynn, are in a legal situation where their their mortgage and financial uh, problems might affect their cooperation. It feels like Giuliani's like getting on TV and just sort of like saying whatever he wants. It's like contradicting sort of either what Trump has said or what other people have said, but what's the what's the truth? Every time I look up and I see, you know, Giuliani on air back, I mean, he's back in the game. I just think, um, you know, my daughter used a potty and she's older now, but Mayor Giuliani's not trying to see a black man turn to John Gotti. And if you don't know about Notorious B.I.G. rhyming potty with Giuliani, then you don't know. 
Now you know. And then you know what DeRay's going to say? He's going to be like, why don't you do this on here? I do do that on here, DeRay. I didn't say that. <laughs> Fridays to be 6 p.m. Eastern time, 3 p.m. Central time. Rudy Giuliani is such a, it's such a New York figure. I mean, it's, it, look, take a step back on the politics. You've got a Republican Party that has made it its business to both run against urban America as a political symbol and in many ways uh, advance policies that involve what critics would call the hunting of urban America. And then they fall in love with this reality show star, and it's all urban America, New York. It's a certain version of it, but it's all New York. I mean, Michael Cohen we're just talking about. Donald Trump is New York. A lot of the financiers are these New York people. And then you got Rudy Giuliani, right, who was the federal prosecutor in New York, the mayor of New York, who's involved in so many controversies here. And now he's out there at a a different stage in his career, I guess, trying to help Donald Trump. But I don't think he's very good at it right now. And I think that's pretty obvious. He's not helping, is he? Think about it like this. People love Shaq, right? And we see Shaq all the time. He's in the culture. But that doesn't mean you would just hand him a basketball and put the finals on his back right now, right? Mm-hmm. We see him now for what he used to do. But he's not playing right now. It's very different. It doesn't mean that he doesn't bring a lot of context. So Rudy going on TV to talk about stuff, sure. I mean, he whether you agree with him or not, he's got a ton of experience. Most people have not been the top federal prosecutor in Manhattan and the mayor of New York. Boom let alone a presidential candidate, all the other stuff he's done. That's, that's what he brings to the table. But you were talking about getting back on the field, in the arena, in the middle of complex litigation, high stakes, serious Why details. Why do you think Trump chose him then? <clears throat> because, Trump, because Trump staffs right out the green room, and he doesn't know any other way. Hmm. So I, I could outline certain criticisms I have of Rudy Giuliani. <clears throat> I don't think they would surprise your viewers per se, your, your listeners, but— it's not even about that. It's more about, like, Rudy's so far out of the game, and he's more of a color commentator. Now you're trying to put him in the field, and of course he's not ready. I mean, he said things in the Fox interview about funneling money that are worse than what the accusations were at the time. <laughs> I'm like, damn. He's like, look, and, and, and if, there was a, if there was a bloody knife, it's missing now, so don't worry about it. And you're like, I hadn't heard about the bloody knife. <laughs> what kind of defense lawyer is this? How do you feel about Meet R. Kelly? I think that if somebody's art is separate from what they do and what they do is debatable, then maybe you leave room for art. But if somebody's art and what they do are mixed to the point of felonious conduct and really bad stuff, then, yeah, I understand that people want to make it to sit. Whether it's R. Kelly or Chris Bown or some of these individuals, if they haven't been held to account for the conduct, and it's provable, so those are some ifs, then at a certain point, I understand people in the culture saying we need to stand up to this and not just sort of always put it to the side, which to me is different than saying somebody, you know, you disagree with Kanye's really ridiculous defense of Trumpism. But at the end of the day, or slavery being a choice, oof, but we're still in the realm of what are ideas that might even be too kind. It's not even an idea. But what are, what are the things you can still say versus wait? Uh, you know, I watched this Chris Brown documentary and one thing that came through and it was. It it did not appear over time that he found a way to say, I did this terrible thing and I'm really sorry, and that's it. There was always these weird but after. And so for the same reason in criminal justice we talk about if someone does their time and then they need to get a second chance, that's important. I think with artists it's a little different because we're talking about, well, what are you putting out to the community? When people see Chris Brown on a stage and they see little girls cheering, 
what are we cheering and are we very clear about what's okay and not okay? So I think efforts to have an adult conversation about how we want to control that as a culture is, is positive. Do you support Spotify's decision to remove R. Kelly from the playlist? I think, see, now you asked the question in a tougher way. I think these things are better done through public debate that lands in an organic place than what can become a public rush to pressure corporations who then will always do, and not always, but often do what's expedient. Because now you've kind of now you've made it too easy on us, and we berate a company for a short, a short amount of time, and then they take the easy way out. And I don't know that we've dealt with the root problem. So I'm not saying yes or no, like it's a terrible thing. I'm just saying like we need to deal with the larger thing. And as someone who practiced First Amendment law, I am really skeptical of giving corporations even more control, more monopoly over speech and ideas and democracy, because they already have too much of that. You know, I think they've been working on this for a while. Like, I don't think this actually came as a result of the R. Kelly stuff. I Mm -hmm. think they've been working on it for a while. You know, I think it got misconstrued in the press that they removed their music from Spotify, and that's not true. They just removed them, not just, they removed them from the playlist, which is in and of itself important. I do think this is like the beginning of a larger conversation about like what does, what's like our collective responsibility. I, I agree with you about the public pressure. I do think about the platforms that, like, you know, like the, there's so few platforms that everybody uses that like, that does make them like Facebook is like responsible, right? It's not, it's just not, it's not just us, like what we choose to click on. It's also like the platform allowing us to click on things is like a part of the responsibility. What do you make of, obviously, you know, we first met around the police stuff is I'm, I am interested to see Trump be so heavy handed in attacking like the FBI and like the top law enforcement people while simultaneously being like cops are the most incredible people in the country and da da da. Like what, I think I never thought that the president would just openly attack the FBI. Like, I just, that was, that like seems so foreign to me. What's your, t- do you think this is just like a, like, why do you think he's doing it? Do you think he just didn't like Comey? Do you think, I don't know, like, what's the what there? I feel like I'm missing a larger message, or maybe it's not a larger message and he really is just doing whatever. Who's the most dangerous guy to fight at the bar? The person who's armed? And if multiple people are armed, who's the most dangerous armed guy? The biggest armed guy? No, because no. he might he might be really responsible, or he might have a baby at home. He's thinking the about. reckless person with no person has nothing to lose. The person with nothing to lose, and they're often more dangerous, even if they have less ammunition. Donald Trump came up into this campaign with nothing to lose, with no relationships in politics, and with no sense of shame. He would tell you that himself. I don't. I mean, that may sound like a criticism, <laughs> but he would just say, "Of course, I don't care what any of these people think." And then he came up into the presidency in a very uh, unexpected way, even to him, let alone everyone else, and also feels like he has nothing to lose because he is not interested in how government works, let alone, let alone respectful of the traditions and the norms and the things and how we got here. So even the things that would constrain other presidents, even Richard Nixon, don't really apply here. And that's why, ultimately, the story that we're in, and I know the, you know, you're in part of a series of, of programming, I think, that is connected to a lot of people who care about this. And part of why I think people should care is we don't know how this ends. It, it could end as an aberration. And you say, oh, well, that was a whole period, and then we got back. 
Or this could not be an aberration. This could more than normalize, it could routinize these things. And you have someone at the top who literally doesn't care. So he'll do all of these things to attack who he wants to attack, to undermine anything that's a threat to him. And if if he does get away with it, and the judgment is, and I try to keep an open mind about where it all lands, because that's a part of my job, but I'm saying as a hypothetical, if where it lands is overwhelming evidence that he undermined an open criminal probe in the Justice Department the way that Richard Nixon tried to, and he gets away with it, and the view is he's basically above the law, then you have to ask, what kind of democracy are we left with? Is it one where if the right person gets in and laws don't apply to them, which kind of means that they decide how long they stay in office? Because if there's a contested election and they already blew through a criminal probe, like, what's a, what's a Bush v. Gore? Right. So that's that's serious. That's a serious set of questions. And yeah, I think the fact that he's willing to blow up the FBI on the way is is concerning to say the least. Well, thank you, thank Mr. you, Melber, thank you very pie. much. This was great. Boom, 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 boom. That's all the sound effects you get. What I'd like is at least at the very end, just like a triple air horn. <laughs> request duly noted. <laughs> Done. They're not taking requests in the DJ booth. Thank you, Duray. <laughs> cool. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. <laughs>